Welcome to the Horror Babble Originals podcast. A Long Weekend at Happy Chambers by Pete Sillett and Peter Browning The following appears to be an unfinished manuscript for a chapter of The Travel Guide, Family Camps of the British Isles, by Avery Delapore. The document was recovered by police at his home during the investigation of his disappearance, along with a knife covered in blood and an as-yet-unidentified liquid. Friday Upon entering the Bridgeshire site of Happy Chambers' family camp, you met with an immediate sense of longing for better times. The brownish hue to the welcome sign has been imposed upon it by the passage of time, rather than aesthetic choice, the warm reds and yellows of its original design merging into one another to create an eggshell shade. You're met at the front gate by a fellow sitting in what appears to be an umpire's chair. He will slide down and offer you a vacant smile while checking your reservation details. As with the signage, his uniform is dated and creased, harking back to a lost golden era of family holiday camping in the United Kingdom. You will receive some hand gestures to approximately convey where you need to head in order to check in and proceed to your chalet or caravan. I must say that I like this approach. I don't need somebody babysitting me on my holidays, and to be honest, half the fun of these places is locating your caravan yourself. I have fond, albeit vague, memories of coming to this place as a child, and although most of the dwellings are completely identical, there is still a thrill in finding your own pitch and exploring your new home for the coming long weekend. The camp is nestled between the hills and the coastline, lined by cliffs to the southwest, and a small model English village to the east. Despite the effects of time, which most family sites, such as Happy Chambers, are fighting against, the surrounding area is truly stunning for its natural beauty. Is this particular site aging gracefully? No, but you could pick worse spots to spend with your family and friends. Driving deeper into the bowels of the camp, things become less beautiful. As a line of the employees— named Friendlies here, stand with their backs to me, no doubt receiving some form of training. I do my best to hide my disappointment in how run down things are looking. You do not feel dirty, exactly. You just sense that things are not as happy as they once were. And yes, this does affect your mood. Side note, I'll probably change the tone of that last paragraph, Brian. I don't want to come across as too negative here. But believe me when I say this, casting this place in a positive light is going to be a challenge. As with most holiday camps, the check-in is located at the centre of the site. The winding pathways leading to it are not built for vehicles, but are pedestrianised, which is as it should be. Once you've parked your car and begin to head to this main building, you are greeted, or should that be scrutinised, by the gigantic form of the camp's mascot— Jerry the Giraffe, the word giraffe inexplicably misspelt with a J. The huge neck stretches up about thirty feet, and the moulded face looks down on the camp with eyes that look in slightly different directions. 
suppressing a shudder, you walk into the main reception, setting off a bell somewhere behind the desk. Along with the chime, perhaps louder than it in fact, is the sound of compressed air. The room huffs and puffs as if you've inconvenienced it in some way. Dust motes dance around the murkiness, as the door closes behind you, and you might be forgiven for asking when last it was that a broom had been utilized. Sitting behind the desk, waiting for you, is the silhouette of everyone's favorite grandmother, Mrs. Bildman. Now, I can remember Mrs. Bildman from when I was visiting here as a child, and she was somewhat ancient then, so I cannot believe that this is the same Mrs. Bildman from my memories. It seems more likely that this is her daughter, or perhaps granddaughter. She seems to be just as decrepit and infirm as the original, though. The reception is ill-lit, and Mrs. Bildman sits in the gloom in her wheelchair, talking in a raspy voice about your stay. You exchange vague pleasantries, and eventually hand over your money in exchange for the chalet keys. As her long, spindly fingers drop the keys into the palm of your hand, your holiday has officially begun. Side note. I cannot express the stench emanating from that place, Brian. I obviously don't want to include it in the main body of the chapter, but if it's an ongoing problem here, I should probably give readers the heads up. It was very strange talking to Mrs. Bildman. She had the same voice and mannerisms as the old one. But there's no way that she'd still be alive now. Both caravans and chalets at Happy Chambers are referred to as dwellings. It's a cutesy name and sits well next to the camp's other quirky ways of distinguishing itself from other similar destinations. Bins are labelled as your leftovers, and toilets are now hygiene posts. Whether or not the word hygiene has any business being used here is something that I shall decide for myself later. After entering my own dwelling and setting my bags down, I began to unpack and took the pills that I missed first thing this morning. That's the problem with being on the road. It's difficult to maintain any sort of routine. So, now I'm out of sync with my tablets. Which is fine. I can just rearrange when I take the midday and evening ones. The area surrounding Happy Chambers really is a sight to behold. High rolling hills line the horizon, which allow for spectacular sunset vistas, which would be enough to trick anyone into thinking they may be in a tropical paradise— if not for the occasional blast of chilly UK wind from the sea. The sound of insects is welcome here, the gentle chirping of crickets and purring of cicadas, note to self, check if the UK has cicadas, easily drowns out all but the sound of children playing in the nearby playground. The grounds themselves do not appear to be well kept at all, however— it is only upon closer inspection that you realize that the floor lining the common areas is simply soil. I'm not sure that there's anything particularly wrong with this, but one might argue that it is not an entirely suitable, civilized environment for children to make play. I snapped a few pictures for illustration here. The flash doesn't seem to be working, so perhaps there's already enough light." Although the site appears to be even more run down than when I arrived, this clearly does not bother the other guests, busily enjoying themselves and hurrying off to enjoy the amenities. 
The best and probably only way to describe the camp's clubhouse is bizarre. The Hound and Moon sits just off from the reception area. It is a hive of activity now at 5 p.m., as families stumble in and out of the off-white brick building. A sign for the clubhouse sways in the wind, its rusted hinges squeaking. It depicts, or attempts to depict, a hunting dog sat baying at a full moon above it. Unfortunately, either time or vandals have defaced the poor dog, and he now appears to be headless. Side note. For me personally, the sign seems a pretty good metaphor for the guests here. They're all scurrying about enjoying themselves, despite the filth particles that I can practically see floating about all around, just carrying on senselessly, like the dog howling at the moon, even though he can't howl anymore. But as long as guest quotas are being fulfilled, then who cares about outside appearances, right? There was a slight odour here, perhaps the same one that I smelt in the reception. Inside the clubhouse you will find more of the same. A low thrum echoes through the cast-brick building, though I can't in good conscience describe it as music. The building splits off in two, with the area for family shows and entertainment taking up the larger right-hand side, and the children's arcade and activities room to the left. Children are happily left to their own devices, with two friendly stood guarding the door. Sorry, Brian, I couldn't go into the activities room to give you any further detail. The stench was overbearing and offensive. Oh, and that word choice was intentional. Those friendlies were guarding that door. Anyone with fond memories of happy chambers will have fonder memories of the friendlies, those affable, unobtrusive, but ever so reliable assistants and entertainers always wearing a smile on their faces, even when dealing with the most obnoxious or awkward of guests. Every child will remember that one particular friendly who retrieved a lost ball, taught them to make daisy chains, or maybe simply gave them a morale boost when they were feeling low. Despite the time-worn nature of the place, the one thing that doesn't seem to have faded is the smiles on the faces of the friendlies. The bar area is neutral, with ample space for a couple of hundred people. Its appearance is more like an auditorium than a holiday clubhouse. With a stage come dance floor at one end, tables and chairs line the edges of this large expanse. Holiday makers are treated to what appears to be a moderately equipped bar, with a few satisfied customers already camping out here. Amongst other things, you will be able to distinguish the faint aroma of chicken and chips. Although not so bad there, the building did still have that same putrid smell. It was passive, in that you didn't always notice it. But when I did, I really did. It was so bad that I had to rush to the toilet to take another lot of my pills. <laughs> I know it hadn't been long since the last batch, but I needed something to steady my nerves. I was given a flyer for something called the Candle Mask event, which I don't really remember from my own childhood visits. Not that my memories are all that vivid. It's about as appropriate for families as anything else in their brochure. I'll try to include it with the chapter, but imagine a faded Victorian photograph of a man who looks about seven feet tall, holding a candle in a lantern. He's wearing what I can only describe as a plague doctor's gown, 
reaching all the way down to his feet. But he's not wearing a plague doctor's mask. Oh, no, that would be too straightforward. Instead, his entire head appears to be made out of semi-solid wax, with the faintest hint of eyes and mouth in the contours of the lump. I don't know who their PR manager is, but they should be set on fire. The evening entertainment at the clubhouse is something to be seen. It may at first strike the guest as a little bit off-putting or unsuitable for younger audiences, though there is nothing overtly offensive or disturbing about it. It largely consists of the usual fare, friendlies up on stage, engaging children in silly tasks and competitions— all rounded off with a puppet show. And yet there seems to be something ever so slightly off about it, as if what you're seeing is just the surface, that there's some unknown meaning beneath the words and actions of the friendlies and the puppets. Writing this now, I'm remembering that the other guests were lapping it up. Alone in my chalet, I can feel a chill running down my spine at the recollection— I can see the guests now writhing around back and forth in their seats. I feel like my subconscious protected me in the moment, and it just afforded me the image of them belly laughing. Upon reflection, though, the movements were closer to squirming or convulsing. Walking back after the evening's entertainment, you feel safe in the knowledge that Despite the lack of street lighting, understandable with so many sleeping in such close proximity, there is a sense of calm and quiet that you only get when sharing your time with large groups of families. According to the camp's brochure, there is on-site security patrolling all through the night, though the only trouble that one might fall foul of here is the odd tipsy adolescent being a bit louder than necessary. Yes, the pathways of happy chambers feel safe to walk in the dark. I'm finding this so difficult, Brian. The longer I stay here, the harder it is to find anything pleasant to say about this hole. I even took a double dose of the pills when I got in to calm my nerves. Precious good it did me. <laughs> I woke up in the middle of the night with a stiff neck to that same god-awful smell. I looked out the window and saw lights, hundreds of them, the longer I looked, I realized that they were candles being carried by people walking the paths. I assumed that this was the night security that the brochure referred to as the candlemen. I dismissed that as a joke, but there they were. It was hard to tell looking through the smudged window, but I swear to you some of those lights looked like they were thirty feet in the air. Saturday Felt awful when I woke up this morning. What a waste of a first day. The photos that I took are completely unusable. Every last one of them has the same lens flare problem. I've probably been given a dodgy camera. I'm no Annie Leibovitz, but you don't have that many photos come out the same without it being an issue with the lens. I'm going to have to make up for lost time— I've only got until Monday, so I need to make sure that I get a sense of all of the facets of the place by tonight. Having some coffee in my pills. Then I'll head out and maybe try talking to some of the other guests. Try to figure out why they come here voluntarily. Happy Chambers attracts a wide array of guests from all walks of life. 
Here the working class, the middle class, and even the occasional well-to-do rub shoulders with the camp's friendlies in the spirit of rest, relaxation, and family fun. But what is it about this place, this testament to the heyday of British holiday-making that continues to appeal? Across the British Isles, coastal towns and shorelines have suffered significant reduction in foot traffic, even from locals. The tiny village of Anchester, just a few miles down from the Happy Chambers site, was once a bustling tourist spot with its famous priory, and yet today it is an empty husk. In this context, how does Happy Chambers continue to pull in the punters in a way that no other destination can? For some guests, it's an unabashed desire to relive their own youths. Stop anyone in the street here and Ask them, and every single one, without exception it seems, came here themselves as children. The place certainly does tug on the old nostalgia heartstrings. I myself can dimly remember coming here as a boy with my parents and sister. As far as I can tell, though, there have been very few innovations since that time. Yes, walking through the alleys and pathways of the camp is certainly a surreal step back in time. You— almost feel like you are seven again, wandering about without your parents, but lacking any sense of fear or trepidation. You always knew as a child that the place was safe, that even when out of sight of your parents, nothing bad could happen to you in this camp. The friendlies are always keeping an eye out to make sure that nothing untoward occurs. And yet I can't help but feel a certain uneasy sadness. It really is just like when I was a child— as if the place has been kept in cold storage for the last two decades, and has been defrosted and quickly dusted off just prior to my arrival. Strike through that last paragraph. I think this place is taking its toll. I'm seeing dirt everywhere. I feel like Howard Hughes. Except he could afford a clean room in a mansion to hole himself up in. I spoke with some of the other guests. I stick out like a sore thumb— being the only one here who isn't a parent with their child. But I always explain that I'm a travel writer before anyone gets any strange ideas about me. Nevertheless, the guests I spoke to did start looking at me like I was some sort of weirdo when I talked about how dirty the place is. I mean, I'm looking at dirt right now as I write this up. My field of vision is about 30% grit. I'm not imagining this. Yet everyone has told me that I'm overreacting. They were all happy to admit that the place is past its prime, but they didn't see the place as anything other than a little shabby around the edges. I don't know. Maybe I'm just fixating. I'll take some more pills before heading out again. There are a multitude of activities available to keep the youngsters distracted and the adults amused. Most prominent among these is the playground— which sits in an open patch of land surrounded by rows of the dwellings. Much like everything here, the structure is a little time-worn, but has clearly been maintained by a loving staff. The climbing frame, swings, roundabouts, and seesaws are much the same as you might remember them if you had come here yourself as a child, though with the quirky happy chambers embellishments that one has come to anticipate. The seesaw has been decorated to look like a long centipede-like creature, its spindly appendages tucked under itself to avoid scratching the legs of the children sitting on it. 
The swings resemble upturned spider things, their abdomens forming the seats, their legs curling round to form the safety rails, and the long taut wires of webbing reaching up to the frame. The climbing frame has been adorned to look as if it has been constructed out of long, sturdy bones. Strike through that whole paragraph. What is wrong with me? I just slipped into writing that without thinking. I popped back out to check the playground after I wrote that drivel, and surprise, surprise, it's just a normal playground, not made of bones. I need to wrap this up quick and get out of this place. It must be something in the sea air. I'm going to take a couple more pills and head out to that candle mask event that I got the flyer for. If my nerves can take it, that is. The camp's annual candle mask event, held on the same day every year, is an idiosyncratic family activity unique to Happy Chambers. Much like face painting, but with a distinct local twist, children have an opportunity to become their own miniature candleman by having a wax replica made of their faces, though perhaps a little unsettling when first encountered. The activity allows kids to keep a very unusual memento of their time here. I must admit myself to being a little taken aback by the process, and the casualness of both the friendlies and parents present, but I had the good fortune to have the logic behind the activity explained to me by the grandmotherly Mrs. Bildman, who popped out from reception when I voiced my concerns. She had the most calming and nurturing way about her, making me feel completely at ease, and, if I'm honest, more than a little foolish for my initial reaction. Even now, I have a faint sense of serenity hanging around me, as if I'm being gently borne aloft on cotton wool, but I suppose I'm going about this all in reverse, and I should explain the candle-mask event. Just outside the Hound and Moon, several families were gathered, chatting amiably with one another, and a couple of the friendlies, who generally kept their contribution limited to single-sentence responses. They were sat on a few benches, while three children were laid out in a row on tables. Some of the front-of-house staff were with the children, chatting with them about their stay. Then the door to reception opened, and out stepped a figure that was maybe eight feet tall. I say figure, as the gender was indeterminate, as a very long shiny coat with the collar turned up reached down to their feet. As it stepped forward slowly and awkwardly, there was a faint rattling sound. I remembered at that point that the camp's brochure had mentioned that their candlemen carried over one hundred candles with them in their coats, so that they could continuously keep the fire burning through the night. My throat became very dry when I saw the candleman in broad daylight for the first time. My throat is actually getting dry now, remembering the image. It seemed to be uncomfortable with the situation, too, not used to being out in the cold glare of daylight. Probably they sleep during the day, so that they can maintain their nightly vigils, keeping the camp secure. It wore a wide-brimmed hat that covered much of its face, but what I did glimpse of it was very pale, almost shiny skin. I was already quite uncomfortable with the fact that none of the parents, children, staff, or friendlies commented on the awkward movements or unnatural size of the emerging figure. 
but then perhaps the fault is with me, and they were more polite than I when they saw this unfortunate person lumbering out towards them. Then the ritual began. Strike through. I don't know why I put that. I don't know what you call it. The process began? What's the term you use for face-painting? You don't say that face-painting ritual began, do you? It began. The candleman loomed over the first of the children and looked down at her. Then it lifted up its hand over the child's face, holding something that I was too far away to see. Then a few drips of some liquid dripped down onto the girl's face. Then a few more. Then it became a trickle. I knew what was happening and ran towards them shouting. The maniac had lit a candle and was pouring hot wax over the kid's face, and the parents hadn't even noticed. I got closer, shouting louder. Some of the staff and children looked over to me as I approached, but neither candleman nor the girl moved. It just stood there and continued to pour wax over her face. I could see that she was almost half covered by the stuff. I started to swear— at the candleman, at the staff, at the negligent parents. The friendlies immediately detached themselves from the group of adults and took me by the arm to stop me getting any closer to the candleman, which had not moved an inch since I started running at it. The friendlies had vice-like grips. I felt like I'd been strapped to an electric chair, and I caught a faint trace of that vile odour coming from them. I couldn't take a single step closer towards the girl. I pointed and screamed at the child abuse that was happening right before their eyes. One of the mothers burst into tears. Initially, I thought, because she had finally realized what was being done to the little girl, but I soon realized that she was crying because I was upsetting the moment. What sort of cult is this place? What is going on in this camp? And why was I so calm when I started to write this out? Okay, I, I'm sitting back down to write taken a few more pills to calm me. The kid never screamed, or even moved. Maybe that should have clued me in. Maybe I need to pay more attention. Mrs. Bildman was wheeled out of reception by one of the friendlies, almost in time to the mother's tears. She was pushed straight over to where I was stood, and she began to talk in that slightly static voice that she has, almost as if she's talking through an old radio. You can hear the words just fine, but there's a faint hint of a crackle or buzzing beneath the words. I calmed down immediately, loosening my taut muscles. At that, the friendlies released their grip on me. Mrs. Bildman took my hand, her long spindly fingers covered in a black glove. She too was covered up against the sun, a wide-brimmed hat, long coat and sunglasses covering up much of her body. She gently led me over to where the candleman was stood. She reached up to the palm of its hand and gently scooped a little of the wax that was dripping from the gloved palm. The candle that it had lit must have been completely used up. Mrs. Bildman showed me her finger and explained in the most pragmatic but loving fashion that this was not candle wax but rather a special substance called evil wax that was manufactured for this very activity. She explained that it was not heated, but simply responded to kinetic energy. The more that you manipulate it, the more supple it becomes. The longer you leave it, the faster it solidifies. 
She played with the residue between her thumb and forefinger, demonstrating its gelatinous nature. I felt like such a fool at the time. At the time. But now, as I'm writing this up, I can't deny that, even if it wasn't hot wax, the whole process and the strange, disconnected quality of the parents had the nasty connotations of cult-like behavior. I'm sure it was a ritual. I'm going to preface what comes next with a disclaimer. I was not in a good state of mind when I went back to the Hound and Moon to get something to eat and drink later that evening. The candle mask thing had put me in a bad mood, but on top of that, as I was walking over to the main reception building, I caught a glimpse of a very weird animal in a bush. I caught the briefest of glimpses of it as it scurried into the leaves, and instinctively I went over and moved the branches to peer in, assuming that it was some kind of lost pet. What I saw was the strangest amalgamation of appendages I've ever seen. It was somehow reptilian and insectoid without being either, but also had elements of a porcupine in it. It squirmed its long sinewy body and twitched its spider-like legs when the sunlight hit it. It had bulbous, dead, pure white eyes that looked almost painted on, and a snapping snout like a rat but with tiny crocodilian teeth. It seemed strangely incomplete, as if it was a model that a sculptor had given up on midway through. I covered my mouth and nose instantly. The stench coming from the thing was stomach-churning, and I knew that this vile thing was the source of the smell that had been haunting me since I had arrived here. I have no clue what it was. I've never seen anything that resembled it in any natural history book or program. But whatever it was, the camp was clearly infested with them. I felt faint and pulled away from the bush. I want to make it clear that this nasty encounter almost certainly influenced my perception of what I saw later. I had had a very strong coffee with my pills before heading out, and was determined to line my stomach with something, and then make up the best excuse that I could about why I was going to leave this place early. When I arrived at the hall, I could see the friendlies scurrying about all over the place. To be fair to them, they were busy attending to the needs of the guests, but my God, they moved awkwardly as if they don't feel comfortable in their own skin. Perhaps their uniforms are too tight on them. In the main auditorium, there was an inane puppet show in progress. Strike through, an insane puppet show in progress. I couldn't really make head nor tail of it, not that I was paying too much attention, but the audience seemed to be loving it, screaming and jumping and singing in all the right places. As best as I could figure it, there was a human puppet wandering about in a network of tunnels, entering and exiting different shaped holes. He went in one and came out of another, each time missing the animals that were also popping in and out of the same tunnels. There was a rhino, a giraffe, and a monkey, but these puppets were horrible to look at. They were all caricatured and exaggerated, but in the wrong way— like somebody had described the animals to a near-sighted artist, but hadn't really emphasized which were the most important physical features. The rhino was bulbous, its horn far too curved. The giraffe was all neck, 
with no real body to speak of, with little bristles coming off the neck at intervals, its eyes staring off in different directions. The monkey's arms were three times too long, and its face, well, I didn't want to look at the face for too long. All of the punters seemed to be enjoying it, though. Looking around the hall, there was a cosy atmosphere, and those who weren't watching the show were chatting amiably. But I still can't believe that they couldn't see how dirty everything was. I made a point, hoping that some of the friendlies would see me, of dusting off the chair before I sat on it, and wiping the tabletop with a cloth before I touched it. It was the same as my dwelling— a layer of grit over everything. How could they all be so blind to it? Even looking over to the bar at the far end, everything seemed to be a mural composed of different shades of oranges and browns. And not much orange, I can tell you. Even though it hadn't been long since my last lot of pills, I felt like I needed a drink. I decided that the coffee that I had with them would be enough to counteract any ill effects of the alcohol. I ordered a beer from a friendly who seemed more interested in the puppet show than my drink. When it came, it had the same hue as the bar, brown, with the faintest hint of orange. I smelt it and dipped my tongue in. Surprised that it smelt and tasted like a normal beer, I started to drink. I don't know how long after it was that I began to really pay attention to the audience. I had made a point of not looking directly at the stage— as the uncanny puppet designs were unpleasant to focus on. I was scanning the hall, looking at the families set around the edges of the room, or seated on tables, or crouching down at the bottom of the stage, when a strange sensation overcame me. Just as with the night before, I was struck with a sense that my brain was trying to protect me from something— and that I was not really processing the visual information before me in a very accurate way. I focused on a couple set at a table a few feet from me. Again, I had a feeling that what I had first interpreted as the convulsions of laughter were in fact altogether less rhythmic or pleasant. They jerked uncomfortably in their seats, their eyes glued to the show. I peered deeper into the gloom— and maybe it was this act of refocusing my eyes, or perhaps my beer simply hit the tablet set in my belly at that point, but the veil was suddenly lifted like a magic eye-trick. I could see that many of the children in the hall were not children. They were shaped like children. They had the loosest outlines of small human beings, but they were composed of a very different anatomy. No single one of them looked quite the same as the other— they looked chitinous, if that's the right word. I'm thinking of the stuff that a beetle's shell is made of. Some of them had perfect little children's faces, almost too perfect, like porcelain dolls. But their bodies stretched out in all the wrong directions. Multi-jointed limbs twitched and snouts snapped. I caught glimpses of stingers and mandibles and spines— and then I remembered the weird animal that I found in the bush. Like that, these children felt incomplete, like they were unfinished or in the middle of being moulded. I rushed to the bathroom and splashed some water over my face. I knew that I was just suffering from a delusion. Like the playground before, this was just my mind playing tricks, 
probably because of the alcohol and the pills. It's occurring to me now that I've completely lost track of my pills. How many have I taken since I've been here? I'll need to check. I remember wishing that Mrs. Bildman had been there to talk me down as she had earlier that afternoon. In her absence, I had to perform this duty on myself, staring dead into the mirror and rationalizing my experience. After what was probably half an hour, I mustered the courage to re-enter the hall, and was unsurprised to see a room full of perfectly happy human beings. I was glad that the puppet show had come to a close, and two friendlies now stood on the stage, conducting a quiz. Even though I hadn't eaten, my appetite had vanished. I just wanted to return to my chalet. Filthy though it was, it still seemed like a safe haven to me. I hurried out through the main reception, and caught a whiff of that smell. There was no one behind the front desk, and for a brief moment I was tempted to investigate the source of it. My memories of the children made me think better of it, and I exited. As I headed back to my dwelling, I caught the massive form of the fiberglass Jerry the Giraffe, still with a J, in my peripheral vision. It was late dusk now, and it was little more than a silhouette. But I could not bring myself to look directly up at it, remembering the giraffe puppet from the show. I hurried my pace along the path, and ignored the twitching movement that I saw in the corner of my eye, and scratching sound I could faintly hear. Now that I've got this down on paper and can read it, I know how absurd it sounds. To all intents and purposes, I just had an hallucination because I've stupidly lost track of my pills, and am letting this place get to me. But I am certain that the thing I saw in the bush was real, and that the camp must be crawling with them. I can't in good conscience write a recommendation that people come here. If anything, I should make a concerted effort to have environmental health shut this place down. I've decided to head out and see if I can catch one of those things. Then I can prove that this place is a hazard. No point trying to get a picture of it. This camera just doesn't work. I've got a pretty sturdy backpack and some thick gloves. The thing looked like it might be poisonous. Who knows? Maybe this could launch me into legitimate journalism. It's about 2 a.m. I don't know if my handwriting is legible. I'm shaking so much. I need to get out of this place. I need to get out of this place. I need to get out of this place. I have to wait until daybreak, though. They're still out there, patrolling. I went out searching for one of those things. I was looking through a bush some twenty feet from my chalet, when I saw a procession of tiny lights up ahead of me. They looked like a vigil. There were no street lights, so I couldn't make the candlemen out, only their candles. I jumped into the bush. I just panicked. It shouldn't have made me react like that, seeing camp security. But I guess I felt guilty. I could see the flames slowly making their way to the intersection ahead of me. My heart began to race as I saw the light split off into two groups, one continuing up the path, the other coming down the road towards me. I don't care how this sounds in the cold light of day. This is terrifying. 
I know they're just tall people holding candles, but unless you've seen them yourself, would anyone even notice if I went missing tonight? They could literally clear out my stuff and bury me in a shallow grave. I'm not here with anyone. I haven't had a meaningful exchange with anyone else. No one's going to look around and think, where's that travel writer gone? This place is a cult. Weird rituals and, I don't know, hypnosis, hallucinogens in the drinks. What are they doing in this place? What are they doing to these people? If by some miracle you're reading this, Brian, I'm holding you responsible. What lunatic asylum have you sent me to? I've got to escape from here. I've got to leave as soon as the sun comes up. I can't go to sleep. I'm slightly calmer now. Sorry, Brian, I need to get this down. I was hiding in the bush, and the candlelights were slowly coming towards me. I tried to hold my breath and slid back further into the bush, but I pressed into something spiky and squirming. I don't know how I managed to suppress my scream, but the creature that I'd upset let out a loud hiss. A candleman came over to the bush to investigate the sound— I could just see its outline faintly illuminated by the candle. It was a good seven and a half feet tall. It stopped just above me. Then it leaned down. God help me, it leaned down and looked me square in the face. I could see in the candlelight the face flickering in front of me. It was made out of wax, melted wax molded into the shape of a face. But more than that, it was the whole head. The neck, too, and the wrists. The whole thing was covered in wax, every inch of it. But the breaking point, the part that made me cry out like a baby and run back here without a second glance, was the face itself. It was the same face as that little girl from this afternoon. Sunday I've left it months before finishing this. I didn't have a chance to write about that Sunday on the day itself, and it's taken so long to organize my thoughts. But now I'm sat at my desk at home, pen and paper in hand, with the knife waiting beside me. After my experience with the candleman, I didn't sleep Saturday night. At around five or six in the morning, the dawn started to appear on the horizon. I had planned to just make a break for my car, assuming that they hadn't sabotaged it, then drive as far away from there as fast as I could. I had finished the rest of my tablets, against my better judgment. At the time, I was convinced that the tablets were doing something to exacerbate the hallucinations, but they still calmed my nerves somewhat. As the day dawned, I became aware of something that made me change my course of action. I looked around my dwelling in the morning light and gagged slightly. The entire structure was sculpted out of dirt, and I don't mean like a crude mud hut. The whole thing was formed from tightly compacted and sculpted filth. I felt queasy and light-headed. The bed that I had been sleeping on the last few nights was just made of mud and God knows what else, the blanket woven from some unidentifiable material. I rushed out of the caravan, pushing through the door of dried and hardened earth, 
and saw that the same was true of all the chalets that I could see. It was like looking out at some hugely elaborate sandcastle city, but with an added revulsion thanks to the nature of the building materials. For some reason, seeing this vision in the cold light of morning led me to a decision, though one would have thought that this sight would push me to leave immediately. I was instead energized by a renewed desire to expose the nature of the place to the world. The infestation of the bizarre insect or reptile creatures was cause enough to worry about the health of the guests, but this, this was on another level entirely. I returned to my caravan to pack my things, my intention now being to confront Mrs. Bildman regarding the state of her camp and then remove myself immediately from the vicinity. The government could deal with the details after I had done my part. I headed towards the main reception, glancing in morbid fascination at the husks of earth that made up the dwellings of the camp. I decided to return to the playground, and was unsurprised to find that my initial perception of it had in fact been accurate. The climbing frame— was indeed constructed of long, sturdy bones. The swings and seesaw were composed from the bodies of gigantic insects. Looking at them again, in light of the creature I had found in the bush, I realized that I was only seeing them as insects, as it was easier for my brain to comprehend. Upon closer inspection, they displayed the same strange amalgam of insect, reptile, rat, porcupine, and porcelain. The thing seemed incomplete, as if their anatomy was lacking some key element, and the gaps appeared to have been filled in with artisanal embellishments. Painted on eyes here, teeth of clay pressed on the inside of gums there. I quickly moved past the atrocity, and continued on to the main reception. The central building of the camp was of the same order as the dwellings, but completed in a far more elaborate and disciplined fashion. The walls were hardened, and had been scored to give the impression that they were composed from separate bricks. I looked up without thinking, and almost let out an audible scream when I saw the towering figure of Jerry the Giraffe. The monstrosity was far closer to a centipede, its long, segmented body covered in legs and spines— The bulbous eyes stared off vacantly in opposite directions, while its mouth revealed a mismatched toothy grin framed by rudimentary mandibles. I stared up at the thing in horrified disbelief, but quickly averted my gaze to the floor, when I thought I caught, in the briefest of flashes, the pupils turned towards me. Although I had come to see Mrs. Bildman— I couldn't ignore my curiosity regarding the real nature of the interior of the Hound and Moon. I stepped through the entrance, not daring to look up to confirm my fears about the mascot, and peered into the gloom. Inside, the auditorium was a cavern of dirt, and reminded me of pictures that I had seen of the central chambers of ant colonies and termite mounds. The windows were actually holes that were covered in an orange-tinted webbing, giving the room the hue that I had noticed before. I was relieved to see that the puppet show was not being performed this early in the morning, though there was an entertainer of sorts up on stage, 
engaging the two or three families that were milling about with a juggling trick. I was more focused on the environment, looking at the tables and chairs, the bar, the rows of bottles behind it, to pay too much attention to the entertainer. My memory now seems slightly dreamlike, as I can remember him throwing a succession of white balls up into the air, each one growing as it ascended, but I don't recall any ever seeming to come back down. Perhaps he was a magician, rather than a juggler. Sufficiently repulsed by the confirmation that the drinking vessel I had used yesterday was not made of glass, but some weird amber-like material, I left the hound and moon and headed to the reception, cutting through the main building, rather than passing underneath the gaze of Jerry again. I found the reception to be empty, but the familiar smell of the reptile insects was very strong, almost overpowering. I called out to Mrs. Bildman, but there was no answer. After a few more fruitless attempts, I let myself behind the main desk and wandered over to an open doorway. The smell here was stomach-churning, and I had to cover my nose and mouth with a handkerchief as I stepped through. As I walked down the barely-lit corridor, I had a sense that I was slowly heading downwards at a very slight incline. After some ten minutes of walking, I finally arrived at another door. I called out to Mrs. Bildman again, and this time there was an answer. I was instructed to wait, and heard the sounds of scurrying, of clothing being pulled over a body, and the rattle of her wheelchair. After a moment, she allowed me to enter. She was sat in the centre of a bare room. There was no furniture other than her wheelchair, and, as far as I could see, I was stood in the only doorway in or out of the room. Not wanting to spend any longer in that camp, I launched into my tirade regarding the hideous nature of the place, its filthy accommodation, its infestation of unnatural vermin, and the truly terrifying nature of the employees and their activities. I don't know how long I ranted at her. It seemed too short a time to cover all the numerous horrors that I had encountered since arriving, but she sat and patiently waited for me to finish— when she began talking, it was at first as if she were reading some internal script. She was sorry that I hadn't enjoyed my stay. The Happy Chambers family always tries its hardest to meet the needs of all its guests, but sometimes unfortunate circumstances can hinder these intentions. She would be happy to provide me with a voucher that would cover another visit in the future, at a reduced price. I interrupted her, making it clear that I had no intention of ever returning to the place, nor indeed would anyone return if I had any say in the matter. She did not respond immediately to this. She just sat in her chair, staring through her sunglasses, which I had not at the time considered strange, given that we were in a windowless room. Then she asked me outright what I thought of their mascot outside. I was taken aback by this apparent glossing over of what I had said. I told her exactly what I had just seen, mandibles and all, and there was again another long pause. At length, Mrs. Bildman asked me if I was currently taking any medication. I was not about to be labelled a madman for 
identifying that the place was being run by a cult, so I told her that I was merely on anxiety medication, and that it had little bearing on the present conversation. She let out a long, reverberating sigh, and said that this would most likely be the reason that the pheromones had ceased to be effective on me. She seemed to relax a little, as if she was relieved about not having to keep up a charade. I expected an admission of guilt, but instead I was treated to a revelation that has led me to my current situation. She explained that the pills that I had been taking, in increasing doses since my arrival, were counteracting the pheromones that the camp uses to blindside its guests into ignoring the less pleasant aspects of happy chambers. The pheromones, like the Yvon wax before, were unique to them, and had been used to create a sense of warmth and nostalgia even for those who had never visited before. The discussion seemed to open up a dam in Mrs. Bildman's mind, and she began to talk freely about the workings of the camp. She asked me if I had ever heard of a city called Yian. As a travel writer, I've been to many places, many of which were off the beaten track and obscure, but I had never been to Yian. I had, however, heard of the place. Because of my profession, I have an interest in fictional travelogues. I know all about Swift's Glubdubdrib and Brobdingnap, Italo Calvino's Hypatia, Leandra and Valdrada, as well as Thomas Pynchon's Kinneret and San Narciso, and I had also heard of that collection of cities that apparently stretched across deep caverns beneath the world, home to successive races, human and inhuman, over countless centuries. Kenyan, Yoth, Ankai, Carcosa, and Yian were all known to me as geography of this hidden world. There was supposedly an entrance to that subterranean land, just a few miles from Happy Chambers, at the Priory in Anchester. But then Mrs. Bildman made the ridiculous claim that she had originated from Yian. My disbelief must have been plain on my face, as she insisted that not only herself, but in fact all the staff at Happy Chambers, and some of the guests, originated from that city. I asked if she wanted me to believe that she was some sort of mole-man, the contempt dripping from my voice. I was raising legitimate concerns about the nature of her business, and outright threatening to have it shut down— and now she was trying to distract me with some utterly preposterous backstory for herself and the camp. But this question merely elicited a long, gurgling laugh from Mrs. Bildman. She then told me that she wasn't any sort of man, and now the contempt was in her voice as she spat out the word. And then she stood up. The blanket that had been covering her frame fell away to the floor— and the glasses and her wig followed soon after. I let out a scream and fell to the ground. Even remembering the sight now makes me shake uncontrollably. It's only with the help of some very strong, less-than-legal medication that I can keep control of my hands enough to finish writing this. I had said before that the strange hissing creatures that I had found in the bush and that seemed to compose the playground and the giant mascot outside, gave the impression of being incomplete. And now I understood the source of this sense. The creatures 
were incomplete. They were simply parts of a whole, mere satellites of a larger living entity. Mrs. Bildman stood before me, her body composed entirely of these horrendous, squirming insectoids. Her long, spindly fingers, no longer hidden by gloves, were revealed as the multi-jointed legs of spiders. Her torso was a coiling column of centipede bodies tightly packed together. Her eyes shone with the rainbow reflection of beetle carapaces, and even her voice-box was revealed to be generated through the intersection of cricket-like legs, burning back and forward across one another to create an awful, inhuman laugh. The only part of her that was not composed of these things was her pale face, which I could now see was the smooth surface of wax. I thought of the candle-men— and the little girl whose face they had used as a model to hide a conglomeration of unclean vermin. I don't know how I managed to continue the exchange with the thing after that. Perhaps I didn't. Perhaps that sight drove me mad, and I imagined the final part of our conversation. Mrs. Bildman said that they were all part of a huge entity called the Sin— the sin had been created from the remains of the gods by a powerful sorcerer eons ago, and that it was spread across the world in the form of these reptile satellites. The humanoid collections that populated happy chambers were partial constructs, not fully sin, but merely halfway forms. They were in the process of spreading their influence by expanding their numbers. The creatures grouped themselves together— and then were bound in even wax while a new skin grew around them. This pupy stage was the candle-men. When the skin had fully formed over them, the wax would crack open and release the humanoid friendly, who could pass for human, and then go out into the world to create more places like happy chambers. I stammered out a question about the little girl that I had seen at the candle-mask event— and Mrs. Bildman dismissed me with a wave of an appendage. The guests at Happy Chambers were not harmed, as this would be bad for business, and defeat the object of expansion. But in a few years, there would be a friendly out in the world bearing that girl's same features. Many of the friendly stayed at the camps and continued the propagation of the species, but some went out into the world as sleeper agents, barely aware of their origin. One day, Mrs. Bildman said, there would be a sign, and all the composite beings across the globe would awaken at once. They would cast off their pallid human masks and all accumulate together, reforming the sin. Then the sin, gigantic and omnipotent, would bring about the end of the surface. At that point, Mrs. Bildman collapsed into a thousand crawling monsters that raced towards me. I stood and ran, screaming like a maniac, up and out through the corridor. I did not even head to my car. I simply ran to the exit and kept running, mindlessly, until the sun finally sunk below the horizon. I was found collapsed in an alley by police who, after some non-committal investigation, deemed me to have been on a bad trip and deposited me back at my flat where I have been ever since. I have nothing left to write now. 
other than a justification for whoever it is that finds this. Of all the things that Mrs. Bildman told me, the one piece of information that has haunted me in every waking and unconscious moment is her throwaway comment about sleeper agents. I visited Happy Chambers, that exact Happy Chambers camp, when I was a child. My memory of my childhood is hazy at best. My mind becomes covered in silk when I try to remember my life prior to that visit. I managed to escape the camp, but with every night that passes I doubt that this was of my own volition. I am scared. I am terrified of two questions. When I begin to cut away at the skin on my chest, will I find blood, sinew, and bone, or will I find a writhing mass of spines, legs, and blank painted-on eyes? And which would be worse?'